This is the Roaring Elephant Podcast for the 21st of April, and here is my dark and twisty co-host, Yon. Yes, I've got my Edgar, Edgar Allan Poe out and uh, everything related to dark and dust, musty things that have passed away, gone away, no longer relevant, out of our lives. Good enough for you? Indeed. <laughs> Something like that. Something like that. Yes, we are, we are finally doing the episode that we uh, actually thought about live on the air, slash recorded, um, a little while ago when we came up with the idea of there is a lot of... Uh, articles out there are a lot of news articles out there about various things being dead and uh, it is in the majority of cases it's a lot of clickbaity type (laughs) articles of things that aren't really dead it's just people trying to portray these things as dead or in some cases it's not that they're it's not that they're dead but it's that they've changed from you know maybe what they originally are we thought this was a great idea and uh, i guess we'll find out by the end of this episode whether we were right or not <laughs> yes because we kind of went on a, a hunt on the internet to find stuff that people proclaim dead and uh, we're not going to cover uh, any articles in specific depth because that's not the idea it's not a news episode it's a topic show it's more of a thing of well certain things actually have as you said changed quite a lot and whether they're dead or not at least uh, what they represented may be considered dead and uh, yeah we've we've, we've narrowed it down we whittled it down because we had a lot of things we found we whittled it down (laughs) to about four i think now (laughs) yeah well we whittled it down to four (laughs) themes of things that are dead um but just before we start, it was it was way too easy to find <laughs> articles about stuff that's dead. I mean, literally, it doesn't matter. Like, try it for yourself. You can search mm-hmm. for anything you like, even something that has just been released. It's hey. dead already. It's hey. like, forget about it. It's all gone. It's all I did gone, a, it's all I gone did to a, hell. I did a search. Life is dead. <laughs> Pages of results. Pages of results. There's <laughs> <laughs> even a movie called Life is Dead. Well, there you go. Oh, well, so, yeah. well, when they make a movie about it, that's when it's fact. I think that's that's the law. I think that's no, no, the law. No, when, when it's on the internet, as long as the internet isn't dead yet. Okay, well, you're skipping ahead. So anyway, <laughs> let's get started with our first theme, which is, I mean, it, it, there's two topics here, two t- subtopics here, really. But the the sort of the theme is really both privacy is dead and cybersecurity is dead. Discuss. <laughs> um, um, you're right. Next I think topic. we've, yeah, <laughs> we, we, we've seen this coming for a, a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, this has been a continual message, I think, um, that is only getting louder and louder. Uh, it, you can't go more than a few days without you know, some sort of huge data breach being announced. Um, It seems like corporate firewalls, maybe they don't exist anymore. Maybe people stopped even bothering to put anything in place. Maybe people just assume everything is now public, so it doesn't really matter. Mm -hmm. But uh, one way or the other, uh, the sort of... The position, at least from some of these articles, is that you know cybersecurity isn't really a thing anymore. Like you can't, you can't really secure anything properly. Not quite. So you can't secure it. So why bother? But you can't secure it. So instead, it's just become a game of sort of risk management and just sort of anticipating that at some point data will leak. So try and mitigate it as much as possible try and ensure that 
you might take some sort of steps to ensure that you know when data does leak at least you have a a prepared plan as to what you're going to do when it does it's also it's it's not a strange thing to be honest i mean the whole idea of having something rigid in place i mean and in the olden days when the trees were still speaking and elves uh, around <laughs> Uh, people had the whole idea of having security through isolation, just put a firewall around it and don't let anybody in. But if you look further back, and the whole concept of data security with leaks, it's all a bit, a bit watery. But if you look at boats, nobody builds a boat that's watertight. They all assume water will get in, and they've got bilge pumps to mm-hmm. keep pump it out. And that's how it's been done for ever, as far as I can Even the Viking ships were leaky as sieves. It's just how these things work. Don't try to stop it at the door. You won't be able to. There's always something unforeseen that's going to happen, getting them in. Make sure you can deal with the aftermath, with whatever happens. Make sure that it doesn't become too offensive, too straightforward. And that's where the whole microservices architectures come from. Make sure that if you're in point one, you aren't able to flaw, to simply move on from point to point through the whole organization. Make sure there's not an isolation wall around the whole thing, but that every component is mitigating, as you said, the risk of data leaks, data breaches, security, whatever. And yeah. It's not a, it's not that strange uh, a concept, is it? No, it's not. And th- I think the other relevant to all of this is we're not just talking about, you know, big bad people in nope. in darkened rooms hacking away at keyboards. You know, we're the says admins. Well, we're, what we're Remember. talking about is the fact that environments have got so complex and so um, so difficult for someone to conceive what the bigger picture is that people are mistakenly all of the time, you know, opening up holes or um, releasing data or putting data in places that they just don't realise that that exposes certain areas of their environment, and it's just. It's just going to happen, and the best you can do is, as you say, you know, try and try and have some form of mitigation for it. Try and ensure that you are training your people to understand, you know, at least parts of what this bigger picture might look like. Yeah, definitely. I mean, when I was said uh, sysadmins, I was referring to our uh, episode we did all oh, end of last year, I think, about the Verizon mm-hmm. Tebow report, where sysadmins were one of the biggest bad guys out there, simply because well, they're responsible for deploying all this complex stuff. And even automating it away isn't going to solve the problem completely. Yes, it'll uh, avoid the uh, fat finger problem of uh, doing an RM slash instead of an RM dot slash. Uh, RM minus R, I mean, of course. But even automation, I mean, it makes it... Uh, how did they, when did, what did they say when C++ came out? Uh, compared to C, it was less easy to shoot yourself in the foot, but if you did, you lost your entire leg. <laughs> and, and that's basically what automation does. It if done correctly, it'll probably avoid a lot of these clumsy mistakes because automation, you test stuff. But if something goes wrong, it's going to be a while before you notice it, depending on your monitoring and whatever you have around there, of course. Yeah. And I think the the sort of the combined part of, of that is you've not only got more data being accidentally released about people, but so many organizations are tracking um, so much more information about people in the first place, mm-hmm. whether it's you know the, the Facebooks, the Googles, of, of and uh, and you know, those kind of folks, or just you know, your telecoms provider, your 
um, your mobile phone company, they're, they're, any of these organizations are all collecting such a huge amount of information. You know, every piece of software that you use almost certainly has some elements of tracking. The entire internet is is essentially built on, uh, you know, now a whole bunch of stuff that is tracking people. We've we've talked about the the sort of um, the amount of privacy lost um, on that in previous episodes as well. Yeah, I think then as well I had the question, did we ever have privacy? Yes, the world got to be a much bigger place than the, the small village we lived in. But things like, uh, I don't know, the, the Dutch phrase is uh, social monitoring or something like that. Just the people in the village looking at what the neighbor is doing, looking inside, peeking inside the windows, looking at what you're doing in your lawn, stuff like that. It always existed. It's just that maybe in those days only like a dozen people knew. Now, mm. if you get uh, cyber shamed, is that, is that a phrase? Well, it is now. It's <laughs> worldwide. My question there is, is that actually worse or less worse? Because what do I care if some... Russian guy in Siberia knows something about me. I mean, assuming, yeah. of course, I haven't done anything very dreadfully bad. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I think that, that just uh, w- what we've reached at the moment is an idea that the, there is no idea, there is no real concept of of privacy in the in the, in the cyber world. Well, yeah, but I'm talking in this specifically mentioning yeah. in the cyber world here. Is it maybe the fact that people have um, valued privacy a lot more recently and maybe even overvalued the whole concept of privacy? And that because of that, we're now seeing a lot of privacy intrusions because it becomes a focus of our daily lives, again, uh, fed by the media and stuff uh, and all of the hype around it. Because again, <sighs> when I was yeah. young, my parents lived at home with their parents and the children have multiple generations in one house. How the hell do you have privacy these days? Yeah, it's I, a scale thing. I think it is a scale thing. I think it's also, I think privacy has been, quote unquote, dead for <laughs> a long time. Uh, but I think that it's only relatively recent history um, where a lot of this stuff has come to light. I mean, you can you can go all the way back to you know a few years ago and talking about uh, some of the. The releases of uh, information from things like uh, Edward Snowden releasing a whole bunch of information about what the US government was doing. Yeah, that stuff had been going on for a very, ever. very long time. Yeah. I mean, that, that's basically what we expect governments to do, to be honest. And sorry, I'm hyperbolicizing. Hyperbolicizing? I don't know. I'm making hyperbole. Wow, here. you're inventing all the words uh, today. I'm, <laughs> I'm making a new internet here because uh, it's dead anyway. Um, but yeah, I mean, we want governments to know what we're doing so they can stop the bad guys. And the only way to find out if you're a bad guy or a good guy is to actually look at everybody and then decide on what they're doing if you're a good or a bad guy. It's Again, it's a scale thing, the granularity at which it can happen now. And of course, the, um, can we say, nefarious or under the underhanded approach that a lot of these companies are taking? Because I know personally, I maintain a couple of websites just as a hobby thing, the uh, podcast website being one of them. Just having a nice looking website with a font 99% of the websites out there are having their font loaded from a Google CDN Mm. Google doesn't need AdWords or any cookie trackers or anything like that to track how much websites are out there we're all just downloading a thing from their servers telling them hey my IP address is 123 I would like this file from you (sighs) 
it's just happening everywhere, and people do this without. I mean, Zoom was in the news uh, recently that they were Indeed. actually linking stuff to Facebook and LinkedIn. And that LinkedIn was a little bit more uh, uh, dark and sinister, let's say. But the Facebook thing was basically something in the order of having a a Twitter share or a Facebook like uh, button on your website. And of course, these guys they do this for one single reason: to get more data, to get more tracking information. So maybe it's because it's all we we now have the sense that it's happening for the wrong reasons it's not a we're trying to protect you so we need to know stuff but we're trying to make money of you so we want to know stuff that that makes privacy now become more valuable than it was before the way it's being uh, abused yeah indeed indeed so I think we have probably uh, exhumed that. Yeah, I think I think we've <laughs> exhumed that particular corpse. Uh, let's let's go to the next grave. Um, the internet and open source. We've been use of the internet for quite some time. Consumers of open source, even contributors to open source, for quite some time. Apparently, it's all dead. It's been dead for years, and it's been dying over and over and over. I found actually an article that says open source is still dead. So how how much deader can you become to become still dead? Uh, I guess uh, maybe zombies. Maybe maybe uh, that's maybe that's how it works. I didn't find anyway. any article saying zombies were dead. That's a good one. Oh, there we go. We have to look for that later. Um, so here, this is the, the sort of the whole internet is dead and open source is dead meme or theme or whatever you want to call it. To me, is linked to more of a change in how we see these things now and you know how they've evolved very differently to their initial um you know how they initially started you agree um yeah i mean i don't think they died i think they grew up and yeah. maybe the youthful idealism that came with it died it was uh, replaced by the normal adult... Corporate greed. <laughs> I was going to say adult rationalism, but yeah, corporate greed, why not? Sounds good for me. And yeah, I mean, in the end, somebody's got to pay the bills, right? And you will always have some commercialization happening of stuff that is popular. Yeah. Yeah, I think that, I think that's very much the case. We've seen we've seen the, the rise of certainly the you know the internet and open source very much grew up very closely coupled together uh, we've seen you know we've talked before about the uh, quote unquote predatory tactics of certain cloud providers um, when sort of interacting with open source we we haven't talked quite so much about uh, you know the change in the evolution of the internet but there's there's been enough of it in the news that I'm sure people are fairly familiar with it you know, as as we've seen, even over the last I don't know five years or so, we've seen you know platforms like YouTube uh, massively grow in in popularity, and at the same time, we've seen you know the the rise, the incredible rise of ads in YouTube videos and well, ads everywhere really. And then you've seen the the sort of the pushback of of 
you know that going on to ad blocking services and then you've seen that collapse and you and instead now you've got so much stuff is subscription only or subscription services or behind paywalls and it's the the times of you know information wants to be free and it's all free on the internet and you can go and get all of this fabulous information for free that i think is dead i think that or at least it's not very well and and things aren't looking very well for it but that you know you can you can definitely point at maybe corporate greed being part of it but you can also say that that was potentially un uh, unsustainable mm-hmm. as a as a sort of uh, a method of continuing uh, it is sustainable but in a different fashion and you can go before the internet uh, just look at how information has been distributed before that it came as a side effect because some political parties wanted to rile up people so they had a paper printed that had some new stuff on there but a certain bias into it or you had commercial we want to make advertisements that's been happening before the internet even existed and the way around that in those days was uh, government sponsored uh, broadcasts look at the BBC it's a well known world round thing it's a big commercial entity of course but it still is being at least partially paid if I understand correctly by license fees that every Mm -hmm. Britain is paying to the BBC so they have some part of uh, let's call it unbiased uh, free for everybody uh, news uh, thing going on and basically on the internet you have the same thing you have a lot of uh, government or organization non-profit organizations let's call it that uh, organizations putting out news uh, information uh, awareness messages stuff like that you can't expect everything to be free and we've talked about this before already and again this is nothing new and internet isn't or, and open source isn't going to be the well it's a step towards the ultimate uh, utopia of everything free perhaps but it's never going to reach that end because humans are still humans yep very true very true so with with the way that the internet and sort of open source being tied together sort of have evolved we obviously we're seeing open source evolution has moved from the the sort of very early days of this is something developed by a bunch of smelly hippies in their bedrooms to open source is both driving a lot of um you know a lot of the infrastructure that we know and rely on on an everyday basis but also it is now i don't know that we could say largely developed by big business but certainly I think it is the you know the power behind a lot of uh, what happens with open source is very much uh, driven by organiza- large scale organizations whether it's well it doesn't really matter which organizations you're talking about almost everyone All seems to be contributing to open source in some way shape or form in the tech world yeah, but I always see a little bit of a, a differentiation there, where on the one hand you have the, the the pure open source innovation development of ideas, and then the corporate mm-hmm. uh, layer that makes it usable. Because before anything open source can actually be deployed in a bank, in a medical hospital or something like that, they need to have checks and balances, certifications uh, happening, the training must be provided, support must be available. That's not going to be done by the guy, the, the, the smelly hippie you talked about earlier, who's building his little cute, great new idea thing in his bathroom kitchen. Yeah, kitchen's a better place. 
you need a corporate structure behind that. And considering the size of open source, you need to be a big company to be able to give that kind of backing to the, to the, to the open source thing. Now, ideally, the companies behind it also embrace, at least partially, the open source uh, state of mind. And yes, they want to make a buck because they have people they have to pay. If that's the reason they want to make a buck, that's a good reason because people need to get paid so they can spend money and be happy and make children and whatever. If purely it's a money grab, we just want to get all the money and not give everything back and not have that open source mindset, it's a bad thing. And there'll be good and bad ones in the world. It's never going to be black without white because you wouldn't recognize either at that point. Uh, but that's yeah, it's a slightly different way of looking. I think looking at it, that the the big corporations are actually just as necessary to a vibrant open source environment than the actual open source developer that's doing that uh, innovation in his uh, in his kitchen. Yeah, and let's let's kind of it, almost any major popular open source project that you look at um, is. You know, used incredibly widely by large-scale corporate organizations, but also there's there are so many organizations that have their employees dedicate time to these open source projects. So there, there, there is definitely a, a sort of a, a give and take, a sort of a yin and yang relationship mm-hmm. between um, you know, these large scale corporations and the the world of open source and indeed therefore the the, the internet as a whole yep totally there so was, just to finish this one off uh, yeah, there was one article you uh, you found that I liked that I really liked a bit of nostalgia there it was a article I'm not going to give the link or anything on that but they basically was focusing on the things that got lost along the way <laughs> I mean the, the big YouTubes and Twitters and uh, those are here to stay forever and ever and ever and until they die of course but a lot mm-hmm. of other things have already fallen by the by the wayside and they had things like MySpace and uh, I forget all the other ones but they had the, there was an article that people could just upload the photos that they had posted 20 years ago on one of those now disappeared uh, uh, internet places and that was kind of uh, it was a fun read it was actually uh, I was yeah reliving my youth a little bit there <laughs> thank yeah. you for that <laughs> you are welcome yeah things like uh, things like MySpace and Friendster and yeah, yeah there's there's a there's a lot of um, there's a lot of environments or there's a lot of uh, services that have gone down the path of um I mean, I'm not quite sure I would say that, that, that they've gone forever, but they're, they're certainly they're certainly never to be seen again. Uh, we will never see things like... Um, I, I can't imagine that we'll ever see something like MySpace come back. It's just... I, I, well, even the, the it was definitely of like the time. Yeah. The content it had... That's gone. I mean, we won't be digging up clay tablets in 50 years with MySpace pictures on it because it doesn't have any firmness to the whole data thing. Once those disks yeah. get erased, that information, that culture, if you like, oh, God, look talk, look at me talking about culture. <laughs> <laughs> culture <disappeared>. and MySpace. 
<laughs> no, but that's why we have all these restoration projects going on. Now we have the Museum of Some Art uh, having video games in their collections now, mm. and uh, the Internet Archive, which is not even taking a, f- a single percentage of the actual content out yeah. there, I think. But there are some efforts going on, but it's never going to be enough. And um, I mean, in that way, at least parts of the internet have died, I guess. I guess yeah, we should I think be, so. We should be agreeing to that. Indeed. So, moving from uh, the internet and open source to ponies, or not? Well, the one-trick ponies. Apparently, they're dead. And <laughs> I guess if you only have one trick, that's not a bad thing. Uh, but now this is a more generic one about both startups and one-trick pony startups, and the whole idea being that uh, being a startup is becoming more and more difficult to to actually have a survivable business structure. So yeah, I guess maybe startups so, uh, are dead. I, I would I would take exception to dead. Mm-hmm. I I think that instead uh, it, it's it's some sort of there's a, a maximum age, and I, th- I think rather than dead, the the one-trick ponies and startups. You know, the the essence here is that basically they, they reach a certain level of maturity and they then get acquired. They just get merged into one of the large Borg megacorps and, you know, get just gobbled up as soon as it looks like they might be successful. Or the megacorps kind of turn their, their beady eyes to whatever that particular startup is doing and then just crush their business model uh, by launching their own competing so for me it's it's not it's not that they're dead completely it's just that they're they're the incubation factory for the ideas that then the megacorps just go and uh, completely decimate once they look like they might be successful yeah and there's actually a a, a, a conspiracy theory out there that uh, those <laughs> megacorps uh, and i just uh, highlighted the link in our show notes for you to look at it mm-hmm. that they actually have a corporate strategy of looking around at potential um competition and making sure they purchase them before they get to a certain size where antitrust uh, laws would come <laughs> to play <laughs> and yeah. there's a link here if you look just search i'm gonna say it's google the google acquisition tracker and it just gives mm-hmm. you a, a, a pretty nice uh, visualization of what Google has been buying up since 2001. And it's it's massive. Yeah. And yeah, I, yeah, mean, I must I must admit I I hadn't I hadn't truly appreciated the the full Yeah, that's a particularly scary image <laughs> actually. <laughs> And then I think Google is kind of the the, the uh, its worst offender. That's too negative because it's not an offense. I mean, it's a business; they can do whatever they want. But I think they are kind. Their corporate strategy is really based on this kind of acquisition strategies. If I look mm. at an IBM, for instance, yep, they bought a couple of big ones, including Red Hat, for instance. But um, maybe I just missed it because it was before the age of openness and no privacy. I have no idea if that was already happening in the eighties and the nineties. Looking at the Microsoft, yeah, they've also bought some stuff. So yeah, that's that does seem to be some some corporate, uh, yeah, uh, strategy behind all this stuff, and that kind of brings it back to the idea of the startups are dead. Because why would I become a startup to make something to improve the world? A lot of the startups these days, I would almost imagine, do something in the vein of I have a great idea, I'm going to build this product around it i'm going to build a company around it in the hopes that i get acquired by google in five yeah. years and be become a billionaire. Yeah. and, and uh, I, I have i have definitely um worked with people before that that you know who have clearly stated that was the focus of their 
you know, their organization. They knew that they had uh, a good idea. They knew that they had, um, a, you know, an interesting product. But they also knew that the the end goal for this organization that they were building would just be to get to, you know, a couple of hundred people and then just be acquired. That that was that was the the outcome that they were optimizing for, which to me is just bonkers. But hey, yeah. uh, a lot of people became multimillionaires doing that strategy. But for me, that's no longer a startup. That's a, a business strategy. A startup for me still has that ring of something. I don't know, youthful, innovative, uh, new, having some youthful optimism in life to try and make the world a better place. That's how I hope. Yeah, maybe totally optimistic there. I don't know. That's for me what a, a startup is. And in that vein, I think we can agree that maybe these startups are dead. Because if that isn't, if being acquired by the one of the big ones isn't your end goal, why would you even bother? Because you can't com- you can't compete against an Amazon or a Google anymore. They got billions, trillions of dollars these days in the coffers. They got so much people. How the hell are you going to compete against them? Well, I think that is the uh, that is the question that a lot of small startups are asking themselves today. Yeah, and one of the articles I found actually had an interesting angle on it. That uh, he, that was an article was more talking about uh, the lack of innovation because of these startups no longer being uh, relevant. And he ended, uh, he or she, I don't remember, they ended with uh, a quote that, uh, where can we look for innovation in the future? If I was a betting man, probably was a man, I'd put my money on the nemesis of big companies, and that's not a tech firm, that's a country, China. I don't think that's, mm-hmm. a, I don't get, I don't, I don't follow that. Sure, China would be disruptive, but definitely in these troubled times, we can see how fragile even China is. Yeah, I'm guessing that article was written pre... Yes, um, it was an article from the end of uh, last year somewhere, but definitely before yeah. the 2020s. Yeah. But, um, so, yeah, I think it, it's... I think it is an interesting observation. I, I think we will see... Well, I, I don't know. I was going to say I think we will see more power being given to things like or more focus being uh, put on things like antitrust and mergers and monopolies and and things like that if there is a desire to really protect innovation but that's a big if and I you know I, I don't know if that is actually the case I mean, and again, regular, regularization, something should be regularized. Uh, having med- medic- medical uh, care for everybody should be a human right. Uh, having electricity, water, and internet connectivity should be a human <laughs> right as well. Uh, having fiber at your house, for example, should be a human right. Right, Dave? <laughs> uh, <laughs> but there is an end to what you cannot mandate um, ethics. There is no way of governing ethics. If that isn't present, you can vote as many laws to exist as you want to. You're not going to make it happen. Yep. We just need to become better people, people. Again, oh it's, our, it's our own fault. Yeah, yeah, that's that's not going to happen. Anyway. This is boring, anything man. Else, anything is, else on 
Yeah, okay, so we're moving straight on to the, <laughs> the final thing, uh, finishing on a somewhat lighter note. Um, so something else that's dead? Apparently boredom. Boredom is dead. Now, this is another article that was uh, written previously to the, the current times that we're living in. But I still kind of, I still kind of agree, and I kind of get it. There is, there is just so much information out there, so much content out there, so many things that you could go and do, even from the comfort of your own home. Um, whether we're talking about, um, you know books available you know electronic books available whether we're talking about applications games um you know media on all of the popular video streaming sites whether we're talking about paid for services or quote-unquote free services um you're listening to us as a, as a podcast there is <laughs> I, I can't even imagine how many podcasts are out there and how many hours and hours of audio the if if you sort of commute um, you will, you know, if you commute on a on a, some method of public transport, for example, I would be willing to guess that something like around seventy to eighty percent of people will just be on that method of public transport, either flicking through their their phone doing something, or on a you know reading an ebook or an actual book, or like, very few people will just be sitting there contemplating their own thoughts, bored out of their minds. <laughs> yep, and even worse than that, most of these people are doing multiple things at the same time. They'll be mm. reading an ebook while listening to music and watching something yep. else in a pop-in window somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's so many, so many things not only you can do, but so many things are actively trying to get your attention. It's, it's yeah. horrible. Yeah, and with when we're talking about everybody doing multiple things at once, the the sort of the common wisdom is that actually our brains don't really focus uh, and don't really function that well if they're occupied 100% of the time. Uh, whether it's people kind of stepping away from a problem and, and then coming back to it later and, and, and sort of having some... Uh, one article talks about the eureka moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but often if you want to do something that is really important, certainly if I want to do something that's, that's really important, I'll, I'll be thinking about it a lot, but I'll be thinking about it, you know, in the background, I'll be you know, noodling on it for a while before I make any final kind of absolute decisions on it, just because I know that I will almost certainly have some additional ideas. And that doesn't mean that you, you can't, you know, make a lot of decisions straight off the bat. But if, if something is, is really, really important, it's worth spending a bit of extra time on. And that is, I think that is linked in with some of this in some cases. Yeah, I think it's, a, it's the thing about doing too much of a certain thing. I mean, diversity is good. Diversity makes you creative. And just focusing very hard can be good for a short term uh, time span. But you need to have some downtime in there as well. Now, the biggest problem with all of this uh, uh, boredom-resolving technology out there, (laughs) making new words, um, is that the attention span is so fragmented these days that even when I talk to my colleagues or customers, just trying to catch their their attention and trying to go from A to Z, even in a focused session, becomes almost impossible. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I certainly have seen a, a trend over the last, well, ever quite a, quite a while of meetings, for example, getting shorter and shorter and shorter. And I think that is, that is definitely something that is both tracking, uh, attention span, tracking, um, different like people's availability as well just like people switching and flitting from one topic to the next um in with rapid succession and it ends up being absolutely draining at the end of the day well, at the end of the day you, you've achieved nothing you've made no commitments you have no to do or plan and you feel like you really didn't accomplish anything over the whole day and i'll take being bored a little bit uh, above that every day because we're not producing as much as we think we do I think and I said yeah. I think a lot there <laughs> <laughs> and yeah I mean some boredom is good because it gives you time to think about stuff in a little bit more relaxed fashion and yeah not, don't don't be so goal driven just let it meander a little bit and I think actually the, 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 the current situation is good for this as you already talked about a little bit but the mm. fact that we do a lot less, for me personally, I do a lot less commuting because I'm not allowed to leave the house anymore for more than <laughs> emergency things or necessary things. Yeah. Uh, so the time uh, on a regular week before I spent, I don't know, every week 10 to 14 hours in a car, that's just 14 hours. And of course, in a car, driving a car is very boring, but it's a different kind of boring because you can't <laughs> really relax either. You can't just close your eyes for five minutes when you're driving. Trust me, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people do, well, but you shouldn't. I uh, mean, yeah. Let's 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 get that. Let's, if we are factually, good, you could, you absolutely could. We would definitely not <laughs> recommend it. Well, let me know when you do it and where you'll do it, so I'll give you your space there. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that's extra time that a lot of people now have in the hopes of taking it a little bit more easy. And uh, there's been a lot of news going out about how this whole situation is going to have permanent effects on how society works. And I think there's definitely some truth in there. Mm. I'm kind of hoping that uh, after reading this uh, yeah, quite excellent article that you found on boredom being dead, that one of the event effects will be that people slow down a little bit more. Or at least maybe not slow down, but take time more, less context switching. I don't know. Uh, well. I... I would like to believe it. I think it is <laughs> unlikely. And the, the reason for that is I think that once, once we emerge out of the worst of, you know, the immediate effects of what's going on at the moment, is that people will just bury themselves immediately in trying to catch up, you know, trying mm-hmm. to, quote-unquote, catch up for lost time, which is a, it's a terrible, terrible way of looking at it, yeah. I think. And I I agree with you. I think the... The, the way that people are focused at the moment could actually be considered beneficial in some cases. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, I don't believe that there will be a... Uh, I think some things will change. I think there will be some, um, in, some positive impacts of this sort of moving forwards. But I also, and like anything on a, on, a, on a sort of pendulum, it has definitely swung too far in in one direction and i can see it swinging back too far in the other direction mm. and uh you know maybe maybe one one day we'll find some sort of happy medium but uh for for the majority of things i think the pendulum keeps swinging yeah so the one thing that isn't dead i guess is the pendulum then 
There we Just go. Being ever broader out. So we're doomed. It's all dead, right? Well, maybe not. So the, the episode is titled It's Darkest Before Dawn, and that does suggest that maybe there is a dawn coming. So hopefully the future may actually be bright after all. I guess you'll have to tune in to find out more. (laughs) But until then, I think unless you have something else to add. That's it from me. Then that is all the time we have for the doom and gloom today. You can (laughs) still support this podcast. We're not dead yet. You can become a patron. Every contribution helps. We're on YouTube. Like, subscribe, notification bells, all the YouTube stuff. We're still a voice only on YouTube, but that is hopefully changing at some point when the internet survives. You can go to www.roaringoff.org. You can find a link to the Patreon page there and more information about the podcast. You can follow us on Twitter using the @roop, at Roaring Elephant tag. I'm still saying at Hadoopcast tag. If you're still using <laughs> at Hadoopcast, you're in the olden days. At Hadoopcast is actually dead. You should go to at Roaring Elephant. <laughs> and you can also send your feedback by email to podcast at roaringelephant.org. Until next time, my name is uh, Born Again Yon. I don't know. And my name is still not dead yet, yet Dave but we're still trying. We look forward to talking to you next (laughs) week. (laughs) Goodbye. See you then. (laughs) Sorry for wishing you bad there. (laughs)